This meeting will come to order. Welcome to the March 1st, in fact, also the first of the meeting season of the Budget and Appropriation Committee. I am Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee. I'm joined by Supervisor Hilary Ronan and Supervisor Shaman Walton, uh, shortly hopefully joined by Vice Chairs uh, Rafael, Rafael Mendelman and Supervisor Ashraf Safai. Uh, our clerk, it's Brent Halipa. I would like to thank uh, Kalina Mendoza for SF, from SFGTV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcement? Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, just a friendly reminder for those in attendance to please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Uh, the Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment, while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Uh, those attending in person will be allowed to speak first and then we will take those waiting on the telephone line. Uh, for those watching either channels 26, oh sorry, uh, what's that, 26, 78, 99, or uh, 26, 28, 78, or 99, uh, and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. That number is 415-655-0001. Uh, again, that's 415. 655-0001, then enter the meeting ID of 2490-031-2076, then press pound twice. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak, while those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker line. If you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. Alternatively, you may submit public comment and writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Appropriations Committee Clerk, at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's 1, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And thank you, Madam Chair. That concludes my announcements. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Today we have Michelle Alersma uh, from Controller's Office, uh, Budget and Analyst Division. Uh, Madam Chair, uh, can I call the item? Sorry, please call the item. <laughs> yes, item number one is a hearing to receive updates on the six-month budget status report for fiscal year 2022 and 2023. And again, members of the public who wish to provide comment on this hearing, please call 415-655-0001 with a meeting ID of 2490-031-2076 and press pound twice. If you haven't already done so, uh, dial star three to line up and the system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. And please wait until the system indicates you haven't unmuted and that will begin your comment. Madam Chair. Thank you. I guess I don't need to repeat my introduction of yours, but for you, please go ahead. Members of the committee, um, Michelle Allersma, Controller's Office, um, with an update on our six-month uh, budget status report that was um, published February 15th, I believe. Um, may I ask that my short deck of slides be presented? Um, Thank you very much. Um, next slide. Um, this is the summary table um, 
capturing the net effect of all the changes that we're projecting for the current fiscal year. Um, that's an increase versus the budget um, in our projected fund balance of about $77 million. Um, and um, just to note that the prior projection that we're comparing ourselves to in this case, um, that first column on the left, that's the projection that we did um, in about October of, um, the, of last fall um, and that was published um, in the first week of January in the five-year financial forecast with the Mayor's Budget Office and the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. Okay, next slide. Um, so if the board were to decide to apply this, this, uh, this budget surplus to the shortfall that we've um, reported before, you would bring your two-year budget shortfall that you'll be that the mayor's office will be balancing and, and bringing to you on June 1st. You would reduce that from 728 million to 652 million. Um, most of the story here um, in absolute numbers is about revenue. Um, we're projecting a 30 million dollar surplus, and there's a there's a lot of moving parts, and I'll talk about them in in a moment. Um, I would say basically like the good news from the last year end that we saw like sort of leisure and hospitality doing better than we thought. That's bringing up hotel tax, some sales tax, transfer of revenue, um, concession revenue from the airport, all that's growing. Um, there's also some in increases in property tax I'll talk about. Um, there's offsetting weakness in business and transfer. Um, overall, it's like sort of a net general fund level. Departments are basically at budget, um, but there's some variances going on underneath that. Um, so on the, the positive side, um, the state sales tax is doing better than we had projected in the budget, and many departments get subventions of that from the state, so DPH and HSA and public safety departments. Um, and we see widespread salary savings across departments, which should sound familiar if you've been hearing about levels of vacancy and time to hire. Um, on the opposite side of the ledger, um, as you know, the police department is projected to overspend their overtime budget by just about $28 million, and there will be um, a proposal has been proposed to, um, to close that gap. Um, at DPH, there's a revenue shortfall at Laguna Honda Hospital, which is not receiving any new patents as it, gets, as it works towards its recertification. So their census, um, there's no inflow, there's just outflow, the numbers keep going down, and so uh, reimbursements for services um, from Medicaid and Medicare go down as well. Um, finally, at the Human Services Agency, we see um, a pretty broad expe uh, expenditure savings, particularly in salary and benefits. Um, and those um, savings will be needed to offset costs that we expect as they demobilize from SIP hotels um, for repair and lost revenue. Um, next slide, please. So here's a little bit more detail on revenue. There's a lot going on here, apologies. Um, I would focus on the variance column all the way to the right. Um, and there's the $30 million at the bottom that we talked about. Uh, just a moment ago. Um, a lot of things doing better, a lot of things doing worse than budget. Um, with property tax, we're reflecting that we get monthly reports from the assessors on the rate at which they're rolling, enrolling supplementals and escapes, and those are faster than we had anticipated in the budget. Also, the Department of Finance um, did not approve the full amount of um, redevelopment agency tax increment that we had assumed in the budget, and so the savings will 
that revenue, since it's no longer diverted to, the, um, to OCII, it comes back to all the taxing entities. Um, any good news in property tax gets magnified with excess EREF because more gets deposited into EREF, the schools get more because property tax is doing better overall, and we get more back from EREF. So if property tax is doing well, we get more excess EREF. It's not doing well, we get less excess EREF. So it's just a multiplying effect. Um, we talked briefly about the good news in hotel and sales tax, um, interest income earnings. Uh, here's the silver lining to high interest rates, I suppose, as we are earning higher um, revenue, higher uh, interest on the deposits in the Treasury as the Treasurer invests that and also some significant good news in realignment revenue compared to our budget we had not known we had not assumed that state sales tax receipts would be coming in the, the way that they are um, offsetting some of that good news is business tax um, some of this is reflecting weaker performance at the end of last year and so we're bringing down our projections it's really the effect of um, Increased work from home versus what we had expected, reducing our tax base, um, reduced assumptions about overall economic growth, um, and also the fact that um, under Prop F, um, there's a rate increase that would be delayed using a measurement that we knew after we prepared the budget. So the rate increases did not go into effect as we had thought, and so that brings down our revenue another 10 or so. Um, the, big, the biggest number by far on the page is the shortfall in property transfer tax revenue. Um, and this is our sort of, this is the revenue that we have the most up-to-date real-time information about because as transactions are completed and they get recorded, we can see that revenue fairly quickly. And so this is really showing, um, it's not quite a straight line projection, but it's just showing the um, really remarkable weakness, the, the kind of the lack of sales that's happening, especially with commercial properties. Next slide. Um, this is just kind of an illustration of the volatility of transfer tax. And, and what we're trying to show here is this is what we mean by rate adjusted in the title of this, of this graph is just that if we had had the rates that we have today, if they had been in existence this entire period of this graph going back all the way to 2001, this is what the revenue would have looked like. We've increased the rate many times since then, so it didn't actually look like this, but like if we had today's rates back then, here's what it would have looked like. And what we're trying to show you is just the volatility that you see kind of in the dot-com burst, um, in the global financial crisis, um, and then kind of at the tail end today, our projected revenue is also kind of on the downward slope. Um, what we're really showing here is that um, the magnitude of the effect of large commercial sales on this revenue source. So you have a tiny portion of the transactions, less than 1% can generate three quarters of the revenue. Um, next slide. Um, here's another table from our report just showing you um, the shortfalls that we're tracking in some departments. We talked about police. It's really just an overtime overspending issue. Um, as we mentioned, public health is just a revenue shortfall in Laguna Honda Hospital issue. Um, and city planning is coming in third. Um, it's just fundamental weakness in permitting that we're seeing here, weaker than we had budgeted. Their, their revenue has been um, weak for about three years now. Um, 
And so far they've been able to contain their, their expenditures within it, but this is the year where that's kind of breaking and they can't quite close it. Um, next slide. Um, there are many surplus departments, and this is partly um, because of widespread salary savings in many departments. Just um, people have really ambitious hiring plans and they're making some success on it, um, but not universal. Um, at the top of the list, general city responsibility. Um, that's kind of citywide expenditures. We have about $5 million of savings in retiree health costs and also we have, um, the general fund has to give less hotel tax revenue to make up shortfalls elsewhere because hotel tax is doing better. So some of that savings, it, that money stays within the general fund in, in this bucket here. Um, next slide. Again, apologies, there's a lot of numbers. These are, this is a summary of our, the city's reserves. Um, I think the takeaway here is that we are um, both depositing to and withdrawing from reserves. Um, deposits are slightly lower than uses, the planned uses so far. Um, and so you can just kind of see over time how we're using those. Um, the last slide, just to leave you with some idea of what we're tracking. Obviously, there, um, there's uncertainty in the forecast. The, um, I guess it's pace of economic recovery slash will there be a recession? Um, I think we're more concerned about economic recovery at this point than a possible recession, um, which would probably come later in the year. Um, of major importance, not just to the current year, but looking forward in the forecast, especially is the effect of working from home on um, office using sectors. Kind of has huge impacts on both of our, both our business taxes and the value of the office buildings that form um, about 18% of our property tax base. Um, we will update you again at the end of March. We're incorporating um, what we have new information from the governor's proposed budget in January. We have information from some forecasting events that we've attended. We'll incorporate that into another five-year forecast at the end of this month with the mayor's office and the BLA. And then we'll do another quarterly update on the current year um, in May, as we usually do. Um, that's all I have, and I'm happy to answer questions. Thank you. Colleagues, any questions? Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Chair Chan. Uh, just one question. The, um, the amount from the FEMA variance, yep. um, is that the final number or are we still expecting to receive some of that? Um, so the, the variance that we're showing in this table is two things going on. Um, it's coming a lot slower and it's not at the rate at, of reimbursement that we had initially planned. So what this shows is that part of the shortfall that you're seeing on, in this presentation is mostly us saying the cash that we have year to date does not support the budget. We're, we're going to assume that that money is going to be received in a future period. So it is on the way. We're assuming that it is. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question. Supervisor Savai. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Can you go back to slide number six? Because you went through that a little bit quickly said net shortfall of departments. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because there's some big ones on there, police, public health. 
Right. Um, police has a permanent salary savings um, and savings in other areas, but um, their overspending and overtime is such that they can't just shift existing budget to cover it and that they will have a net shortfall of $27.6 million in overtime spending. Um, and that is what the mayor's office has introduced a supplemental to address. Um, mm. In public health, it's really just the Laguna Honda hospital revenue shortfall issue. Um, everything else on balance is, is pretty much nuts to zero. Um, city planning is able to cover some of their, at least at this time of the year, um, at least more than half of their projected revenue shortfall, but really what we're, um, we're saying here with city planning is that um, they have a pretty profound revenue shortfall again this year, and it's just reflecting the lack of um, new projects coming in uh, for review. And then go back to your, thank you, and then go back to your rate adjusted property transfer. Go back to your revenues. Because you started off with a summary saying that there was about an additional 76 million that's come in that was unanticipated. Is that right? On page two? That the improvement in the fund balance is 76 million. And so compared to our budget, worth it, our, last, our last projection we thought we'd be worse than budget at this short this projection we think we're slightly better than budget and so that changes 76 um that you could and so you can apply that has been assumed in the shortfalls and you could apply the 76 to reduce the budget year and going forward shortfalls okay and 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 just to the budget director the the plan is with the request for the supplemental request the mayor has put forward is that to come out of this additional money or is it to come out of the reserve So the um, proposed supplemental for the police department would come out of the reserve, um, which is also a one-time fund. So, And which line item of the reserve? Which, which area of the reserve? Um, it's proposed to come out of the general reserve. And I believe reserves, I'm not sure which page those are on. They're on page eight. Yeah, we have it. Yep. So the general reserve. Let's see. Oh, the ones that add up to general fund reserves. So rainy day and budget stabilization add up to general fund reserves. Is that, is that what you're referring to? If I may, it's just the first line on the, on the reserves table, the very, very top. It's almost hard to see. Um, oh, general. Oh, got yeah. it. That's currently Apologies. at $43.8 That was the ending balance last year. So. Um, and now it's up to 64.4, and then projecting it to be balanced at 100.8. And... So that 100, uh, because the board has not approved any supplementals using the general reserve as of this report, we're not showing any uses here. Mm -hmm. But as, as any supplementals that draw on the general reserve are approved by the board, um, the balance will just decline by a like amount. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, anything that's taken out of the general fund reserve needs to be put back in in the upcoming fiscal year. Correct. So anything that's taken out now would just come out of and it would add to our deficit? It needs to be filled the next year, yes. Unless we took it from a non-general fund reserve. Unless you've, 
chose to use a different reserve to pay for it. It was not gen general fund reserves are the only ones that need to be paid back in the upcoming fiscal year. The general reserve specifically, all of these are general fund Sorry, reserves. Sorry, general reserve. Yeah, this is the one that has a funding requirement um, in our administrative code. All the rest do not. They all have slightly like, different requirements. Like so the depends. fiscal cliff reserve, for example. You've, the board has approved a policy about what that's to be used for. There's no legal restriction on it. Got it. Okay. And then my last question is, um, I'm looking at the actuals of 21-22 on page 4, and then budgeted, and then there's a significant delta. So if I'm reading that right, what the actual... Is it similar to what this this additional projected ending balance, is that impacted by that? Or is it just this is the actual amount of dollars that have come in under these tax categories and what was budgeted? And then so there's a, there's a balance there. Is that correct? Um, so the, it, that's correct. The fiscal year 22, those are actual revenues that were recorded mm -hmm. in that year. Um, the next column to the right is what we budgeted in the current year and then changes to that budget that we're projecting. And the net difference from the budget is going to be added to the fund balance available to solve next year. And what's that? Is that number shown? $30 million compared to budget. Got it. So this, that's, what that cat, that's what that column is, the 30.2? Mm-hmm. And how does it go from a difference of actuals of 5,352,000.9 versus 5,126.3 down to only 30 million? Oh, the, the 30 million, that's just a variance column. Huh. It's, just a, it's just a difference. So if you want to look at the absolute number, like what's different in fiscal year 22 versus this year in 23, like where's the big change going on? Why is the number going down? The single biggest factor is real property transfer tax, which is going down by approximately $300 million. Got it. But in that verse budget, it's only 156.7. I understand you understand these numbers inherently. There's nope. also yeah, members yeah. of the public that are watching this. Yep. And I'm also trying to understand exactly what you're presenting to us. Um, because a lot of times if we don't ask the question the right way, new money pops up in different places. I, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just... Understood. Just no, fair question. I, I do... Trying to understand I do actually where we are. Mm -hmm. So the actuals were what was actually sp spent in 21, 22. What was budgeted in the upcoming year is a lot less than that. Yes. But where are the... Where, and, and it's hard for you to know exactly what the projected revenues are, but you've estimated those. Is that right? That's right. And that's what the six month is, is that right? Yes. Got it. Versus, okay. But I, I, I get it. I understand the, the biggest point is the real property transfer tax, and a lot of that has to do with downtown office core buildings de being devalued, and when they do transfer, they're transferring for a lot less than what was originally um, either they were sold for or what they've been valued at. Can you ask, answer one last question? When property owners, whether commercial, pr 
private, small, large, medium size are coming in for um, reassessments. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that impacts the overall? Because there's a significant amount of reassessments that will be coming in based on those devaluations and also defaults. Can you talk a little bit about that and is that reflected anywhere in this budget? It is reflected in the budget. Um, we have made, um, so we regularly receive uh, updates of all the cases pending, pending and closed from the Assessment Appeals Board. Mm -hmm. um, we use the closed cases to see kind of what has been heard and, and what was the result of um, the board's decision on appeals for different categories of properties. And we use that to make assumptions about what they're gonna do with the outstanding appeals for the, um, for the years for which they have, uh, people have filed appeals. So that's tax years, well, 22 is the most recent tax year. Those appeals were due September 2015th, 2022. So we do assume that um, given what's outstanding, we assume sort of like a, a total reduction rate on the value that they have not yet decided based on what they have decided. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Chair Shannon. Just a quick question. I, I was going to wait, uh, but just for my clarity, the proposed police supplemental right now would add to the $728 million budget deficit. It would, in yes, it would increase the deposit requirement in the budget year. Thank you. Any other questions? Seeing none. Um, thank you. I, I, I think that I look forward to seeing the another six months uh, status uh, budget status report. Uh, we appreciate you setting up that picture for us um, so that as we go into the budget season that we're aware, I think particularly for me, it's the net shortfall department to kind of help us think about um, when the mayor proposed her budget and what that would actually look like. Thank you so much. Um, seeing that, no more questions. Oh, wait, Supervisor Safai. I, I just want to follow up on Supervisor Walton's question. So in years past, when we've had a projected ending balance, we're, we have, in some cases, spent that money and not gone into the reserves. So maybe I can ask the budget director this question. What is the reasoning behind wanting to take general fund reserve money versus taking projected ending balance money for this supplemental request? I think that the projected ending balance, that is the projection right now, but there will be several more updates before we get to the end of the year. So like with many of our revenues and projections right now, there's a lot of moving targets. So the most responsible thing, in, in my opinion as budget director, would to be a draw on our most general reserve um, that's meant for unforeseen circumstances that come up through the year, and then make a commitment to refill that reserve next year. So that was de the decision. We could make a different decision, but we know what is appropriated in that general reserve, whereas ending fund balance for the year, that number could continue to change as we go through the budget process. But in years past, um, we haven't approached it that way. And I understand we're in a different economic climate and it's harder to project, but it seems as though given the 
hotel tax and sales tax and some of the things that have contributed, even excess EREF that have contributed this to this projecting ending balance uh, versus it would almost be like not adding to our deficit, right? Because we, ha we have to fill that back in based on the requirements of general, general reserve. But I, I, I guess what I hear you saying is it could potentially go the d different way and that could diminish. Right, another way to look at it is um, if we had used this ending balance, that would be you know, $30 million less in that balance that we could use. So at the end of the day, when you're talking about one-time funds with which reserves or fund balance are, it's sort of all the same money. It just mm. kind of depends kind of where you're pointing to that you're using it. Well, there's a requirement. We have to fill the general fund reserve. So that is a requirement. So you have to then take money, right? If I understand correctly, you have to take general fund money and you're obligated to fill that back into a certain percentage. Versus ending fund balance, there is no obligation. It's much more flexible in that sense. And so it would not have that requirement. So then it would not impact the future unless in the next three, four months, things go dramatically differently. At the end of the day, though, we're either reducing the available fund balance that we will then use to offset the budget, or we are using a general, so it's, it, it, it nets out, it could net out the same. Okay. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Chair Chan. Uh, so since we're on subject, because you mentioned most responsible, wouldn't it be more responsible for us not to add to the deficit? I think this this discussion might be better had during um, the um, introduction and discussion around the police supplemental about why that is needed in this particular year now um, to help address what the police department is dealing with. But yeah, there's there's going to be a number of hard choices we'll have to make um, for next year. Well, the controller's presentation talks about a $728 million budget over the next couple of years, I mean deficit over the next couple of years, so I do see this as relevant for this discussion. Um, and I would guess, isn't there going to be some type of cost savings within the department? Will there be cost savings with a particular department? Within Can you the repeat police the department? department. So we will be working with the police department to understand if there are any opportunities for cost savings. I can tell you now it's going, given how they're, you know, the amount of overtime that they're spending right now for them to sustain kind of current levels of operations in addition to the ongoing negotiations with their unions about their wage rates, I think it's unlikely you're going to see a net savings in the police department but next year. Negotiations aren't, that's not real dollars because we don't know what that looks like until it happens. But I guess... So I know there are budgeted academies. I'm pretty sure we're nowhere near the amount of officers that have been budgeted. So it seems like, I mean, without looking at the budget right now, there's some cost savings that I'm pretty sure are going to be um, right in front of us from the police department. The, the challenge with the police department, which is why they're bringing forth why they need additional appropriation this year, is that even though there are cost savings, the amount of overtime there that they are expending exceed any of those cost savings. So, yes, they're not hosting as many academies as they had hoped. They're not hiring as quickly as they would like. Um, but then they are overspending in overtime, 
And so the net impact is additional cost and not savings. And what gives any department the right to overspend? Um, no department has the right to overspend, which is why they're coming before this board to request additional appropriation. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Seeing no more questions on the roster, uh, a name on the roster, um, Mr. Clerk, let's go to public comments on this item. Yes, Madam Chair, members of the public who wish to speak on this hearing and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2490-031-2076, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Uh, for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that will be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, uh, Mr. Chu, if you can uh, unmute our caller, please. Great, David Pilpel, I assume that you can hear me okay on this item. Thanks to Michelle Alersma and her team. It is, as always, a comprehensive report with much detail. This is clearly a tough budget year. Needs far exceed resources. And I hope that the discussion focuses on truly needed programs and services in the city and cost-effective ways to provide them. That might lead to legislative uh, changes uh, through the board as to various codes and charter amendment ideas for next year. Too bad there is no regular election this November to consider uh, charter amendments. But again, thank you very much uh, for the report. Lots to read, lots to think about here. Thanks. Thank you, David Pilpel, for your comments. Uh, Mr. Hsu, do we have any more callers? Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. Um, I would say this is the A team here, and I think I will look forward to the budget conversation, even though it may be tough, but I think that you have folks on this body that are really well, the supervisors on this body are very well first um, on the city's budgets passed, and, uh, and I think that we look forward to work with the mayor and city department, um, but I think that I agree that it's it's, it's tough situation, um, it's dire situation. I agree with Supervisor Walton that um, to create more deficits in the existing budget year just make the the upcoming budget conversation that much harder. Um, but I think that Director Dinan already knows that. Um, thank you, and colleagues, I would like to make the motion. Uh, to file this hearing, and I would need a second. Second by Supervisor Ashal Safai, and Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. On that motion that this hearing be heard and filed by Chair Chan, seconded by Member Safai, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai? Safai, aye. Member Ronan? Ronan, aye. Member Walton? Walton, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have five ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, please call item number two. Yes, item number two is a hearing to consider the controller's annual performance report and its impact on the budget and to hear how departments are meeting their performance goals. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this hearing should call 415-655-0001. The meeting ID is 2490-031-2076. Then press pound twice. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, you may begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you. Supervisor Safai is the uh, sponsor of this item, hearing item, and will be leading this 
uh, conversation. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, thank you, colleagues. I uh, just want to make some opening remarks. I'm going to call the different departments today and appreciate them turning out. Um, I called this hearing for us to consider the controller's annual performance report and its impact on the budget as we prepare for what's expected to be a very challenging budget cycle. Uh, thank you, uh, Chair Chan, for scheduling this item today, the first Budget and Appropriations Committee meeting of the year. It's a great time for us to receive the data uh, that will be presented. When then-Supervisor Gavin Newsom passed legislation to require departments to submit performance measures to the controller, uh, this legislation was then strengthened in November of 2003 by Prop C, which created the City Services Auditor. So the most recent performance report shows some troubling challenges for the city, especially those related to response, responses to public safety. It also finds that jobs recovery has not reached all type of workers, and with only 16% of CalWORKs recipients leaving aid with employment, a substantial drop from 2018. I find the following statistic the most troubling. Only 86% of ambulances currently arrive in 10 minutes. Let me say that again. Only 86% of ambulances currently arrive in 10 minutes, down from almost 93% in 2019. Additionally, 911 call response times fell below 90% response standard for the first time in three years. We were just uh, at 93% in 2021. So the downward performance trends uh, we've been seeing in these reports is actually alarming, especially as they relate to public safety and street cleanliness. And so it's why this hearing is important to me um, and so you can understand and we all can understand the performance is measured for, those, uh, for these departments, how they're tackling the challenges and success that they have, and what we need to do to ensure the critical initiatives and programs perform as needed and are supported. Um, today, we're going to hear from the controller's office who will give us an overview of the latest annual performance measures report, performance measures and targets and scorecards. We're also going to hear from the Department of Emergency Services, uh, San Francisco Fire Department, and, and Public Works Department to learn more in-depth performance data trends, including most recent monthly data points, as well as their proposed solutions to improve upon the downward trend in performance targets. Um, so I'd like to break this hearing into two parts uh, with the time for questions on both. First, we'll begin uh, with the Controller's Office, Department of Emergency Management, and the Fire Department regarding emergency response. And secondly, we'll hear from Public Works regarding the cleanliness of our streets. And finally, uh, DPH will be on standby for questions. So the first to present is the controller's office. I'd like to welcome Natasha Mihal, um, City Performance Director. Thank you for being here, Ms. Mihal. And the floor is yours. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Natasha Mihal. I am the City Performance Director. Uh, city Performance is one half of the City Services Auditor Division. Uh, audits uh, is the other sister uh, organization in our group. So just to give a little background, as Supervisor Safai mentioned, we are actually established in the City Charter um, back from uh, the election in 2003. So we are Appendix F. Our charge, in addition to many other items, is to track and report on city performance. So one way that we are meeting this charter mandate is we have been tracking for about 20 years now performance measures for all city departments. 
We have over 800 measures for all of the departments that we publish twice a year. So today we're talking about the fiscal year 21-22 annual performance report. So that will include results for all of those measures for the full fiscal year. It includes also the targets that had been set in the prior year for what the performance should have been. The second time we publish all performance reports is uh, measures, excuse me, is also in the budget book that you will receive on June 1st. So part of the reason to have that is you are looking at what the projected information might be for those measures for the current fiscal year as you're looking ahead to the future fiscal years. So this should be able to provide you some context of how departments are, are performing. So why do we have performance measures? They're really to track uh, the, both the city's and department's strategic goals. We're tracking how much we're doing and how well we're doing it. There's a lot of discussion about outcomes and how outcomes are the best measures. At the same time, you really do know, you need to understand how much you're doing and are you doing it well enough. So this is where performance targets come in. So as departments have their strategic plans, they may be setting their target goals. How, how, how frequently do we want to respond to a certain service? How many offerings are we going to provide? So that is both a strategic priority as well as a funding priority because those two have to match. If you decide all of a sudden that you want to serve 1,000 people but you're only funding for 100 people, that target is going to be a little out of alignment with what might happen. We do have the Performance Scar Cards website. So here we have tried to shrink the number of measures for people to pay attention to. So this is an effort that we launched about seven years ago to provide high-level information. Many of these are reported on a monthly basis, so you can keep track in real time of how performance is going. Uh, you'll see we have nine different topic areas that you can look at um, at sfgov.org scorecards. And then today, we're talking about our annual report. So in the annual report, we do publish all performance measures for all departments. It's a very long appendix with all of those measures that are um, uh, categorized under a department's strategic goals. But in order to provide a little bit more context, we have a front section that's about 20 pages that highlights some scorecard measures as well as some other critical performance measures to give a little bit of context for why they might be performing. We're not going to be able to answer and track all 800 plus measures to be able to answer these questions. However, this is very useful information for you to understand where you might want to ask a department what the challenges are. So that's actually why today is structured the way that it is. We're gonna select three performance measures, which is a response to 911 calls, ambulance response, and street cleaning request response. It's to hear from the departments, what are the challenges that are they, are they facing? Why is performance the way that it is? And what are some solutions to address it and to improve performance to those targets that we have set? So I'm just gonna run through three examples that are not those three to give you a little bit of context for what's in this report. So we do have Vision Zero. Back in 2014, the city set a policy. This is our commitment to creating safer, more livable streets with the goal of eliminating traffic fatalities and reducing severe injuries. When we published this report, we had incomplete data for 2022. Unfortunately, the final number for 2022 is 37 fatalities, which is the highest since this policy was enacted by the city. There are 15 departments within the city who participate in the Vision Zero initiative and includes all kinds of uh, programs from 
um, the MTA working on street calming efforts. Some of those might be small, some might be large, but this is a citywide policy that we agreed to commit to. So this is, a, this is an area where you might want to further investigate. We might be providing the information. Um, the injuries, it's also important to track severe and critical injuries because not all traffic collisions actually result in a fatality. The Department of Public Health publishes these numbers every two years. It's a combination of data from Zuckerberg General Hospital and Trauma Center as well as from police co collision data. The second category to highlight today is on the safety net programs. So these are programs and policies to reduce the effects of poverty in San Francisco. Even if, you, even if I didn't say this, you might sense, oh wow, some of these numbers have changed recently. During the pandemic, there was a lot of federal, state, and local um, policy changes to try to address the pandemic-related recession. So everything from um, suspended annual eligibility in Medi-Cal, um, recipients for that have increased, CalFresh, um, uh, those, the state expanded the eligibility actually before the pandemic, and that did continue to increase. CAP is the County Assistance Program, which is uh, cash assistance to low-income individuals without dependents. This does tend to be tied with unemployment benefits, so as those unemployment benefits went away, this caseload increased. And then CalWORKs is cash assistance to low-income families. We have direct exits from homelessness. So this is the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. It's their programs to help households to exit homelessness to housing. So three of the strategies that they're using are problem solving. So this is going to include smaller interventions that will divert or rapidly exit people from homelessness. This could include, in the past, Homeward Bound. They're developing new programs uh, to fit into this category with the particular targeted interventions. Rapid rehousing is time-limited subsidies that decrease um, as the tenant stabilizes, and then permanent supportive housing offers tenants long-term affordable housing. So in this kind of measurement, you can actually see how is the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing doing? How are we as a city addressing this challenge to go through? And as you're going through the budget process, you can be talking about what is expected. To just quickly go through the three that we're going to talk about today in detail. So I am showing 911 call response, which is 95% of emergency calls within 15 seconds. This is a state um, or federal state requirement to actually change the way we had been measuring it. Uh, the Department of Emergency Services is going to talk about 90% of calls within 10 seconds, but as you can see, the results have, are lower in fiscal year 22 than they were in 21, and we'll be able to hear from the department of what those challenges are. Ambulance response to life-threatening emergencies. So here, the stated goal is to respond to these incidents within 10 minutes, at least 90% of the time. And as discussed previously, this result has gone down again from fiscal year 21 to fiscal year 22. And then finally, street cleaning and sidewalk response. So the performance target is to respond to 95% of these requests within 48 hours. And again, 
performance has gone down from fiscal year 21 to 22. I'm going to hand it over to the Department of Emergency Services so we can better understand uh, why performance is the way that it is. Good afternoon, supervisors. Thank you. Uh, my name is Robert Smuts. I'm a deputy director for the Department of Emergency Management. I oversee the Division of Emergency Communications. Uh, the uh, Emergency Medical Services Agency also reports up through, uh, through me. Um, I want to start off by showing our historic service standard, which is to measure the number of 911 calls answered within 10 seconds. Uh, we do have two parallel standards. Uh, the standard that I show here, our historic standard, is the one that we've measured for the longest. It is also the most common national standard for 911 centers, uh, and so it's, it's generally the better comparison uh, for other centers. The state does, uh, did introduce a different standard uh, a few years ago, and we also track our, our service against that, and that was the earlier slide that was shown by Natasha. Um, as you can see here, I, I have the data going back to the beginning of uh, calendar year uh, 2009. Um, the last few years from 2018 through 2021, uh, we largely met our service standard. It fluctuated month to month, but we largely met our service standard. Uh, and we have dropped significantly since then. Um, I want to talk about some of the reasons why. Uh, the first slide um, in, in doing that, I plotted the service standard uh, versus call volume. Um, there's the previous uh, section where we did not meet our service standard 2013 through 2017, and a lot of that was, dri that was driven by call volume increase as well as staffing challenges. Um, the challenge we're facing right now, we, we did see a drop in call volume during the pandemic, which was helpful in being able to answer uh, call volume adequa uh, calls adequately. Uh, the call volume has largely rebounded, but hasn't quite uh, reached the 2019 levels and is not increasing at the rate that it was in previous years. Uh, so that is a contributor, but it, that's not the main driver for our challenges right now. The biggest challenge right now is this uh, graph plots our service standard versus our, I call it our effective staffing level. Um, an effective staffing level uh, is mainly fully trained dispatchers. Uh, it is also, um, we have a 10-month training period uh, before dispatchers are able to do the work independently. Um, in the middle of that, after uh, dispatchers are trained to answer calls, we have them do uh, solo call taking for some period of time where they provide benefit to the department doing, doing uh, work before resuming their training. Uh, and that's the orange uh, shown here. And then the, there's a thin um, gray level on top. We do uh, have some help from um, retired dispatchers, Prop F dispatchers, and per diem dispatchers. Uh, but that is pretty minimal. So this graph shows our total effective staffing levels. Um, we went from about 100, in the 150s uh, effective um, dispatch staffing uh, before the pandemic uh, and into the beginning part of the pandemic and then we kind of fell off a cliff. Um, we had a significant drop uh, due to um, really two factors. Uh, one is there was a hiring freeze uh, during the beginning part of the um, pandemic. We, we did not have um, replacement classes 
And a second uh, big change was we did lose about nine people um, due to vaccine noncompliance, which was a significant hit to our workforce. Um, a third factor I'd like to uh, note is that we've had a real challenge um, ramping up hiring uh, since we've been authorized to. Um, this current fiscal year, uh, we were authorized to hire, uh, well, we said we wanted to hire 45 people in the budget, uh, and it was funded at 36, anticipating that we might not be able to hire all 45. We're able to hire 17 this fiscal year. Um, and that was uh, just a pure shortage of qualified applicants. Um, and so our ability to ramp back up, hiring 17 um, applicants in a year is not even average replacement for attrition. Um, we typically only have half of new hires make it through to the end of um, probation after being training, and we typically lose about 12 people a year. So to maintain staffing, not even dig out of a staffing hole, we need to hire about 24 people. Um, just quickly talking about some of the things we're doing about this. Uh, obviously, recruitment is a big focus. Uh, in this year's budget, um, the, the board authorized us to hire a dedicated recruiter. Uh, that person started in mid-October and has had a significant impact on our um, applications. The two two-month uh, cycles uh, prior to her start, we saw 188 applicants in one and 180, and sorry, 281 applicants in a second. The two-month period that just closed after her uh, start and after she's had a chance to do a lot of work in recruitment uh, is uh, 724 applicants, so a, a massive increase. Uh, we do think that that will uh, help us dig out of this hole, but um, it will take a while. Um, from, the date of from the date of application to date of hire, it takes approximately 10 months uh, to go through all the background checks in the civil service process. Fortunately, most of those are state mandated and are not subject to some of the efforts DHR has done to speed up the process locally. Um, from date of hire to when uh, the uh, employee is able to do work on their own, as I mentioned before, it's about 10 months. So from date of application to when we actually see the real benefit of these hires, it's about 20 months. Uh, so it takes a while for us to, um, to, to dig out of this. A um, couple other changes in the hiring process. Um, we did uh, review and have made changes to some of the hurdles in that. Um, things such as, uh, without going into specifics, our drug use policy, past drug use, um, uh, typing standards, words per minute, um, and things. We do not want to hire unqualified applicants, but we do not want to have unreasonable hurdles, and so there's a balance there. We took a look at um, those measures and made some adjustments. Um, we do have a big focus on retention as well. Um, there's a lot going on there, but all I can say um, publicly is that the city and SEIU are discussing concepts to address retention. Uh, so hopefully there will be more to say about that later. Uh, we are focused also on working conditions, which does uh, have a major impact on retention. Um, this is a difficult job under normal circumstances. Staffing shortages makes it more difficult with more workload. In addition to that, we have other factors. Our, we are under construction right now, so we are in process of moving to what was the EOC, which is a kind of a cramped um, circumstance, which will be more difficult working conditions. Um, we also have to uh, 
we are happy to, but it is additional work to do the trainings associated with a lot of the efforts around alternatives to policing and efforts around street conditions. Um, there are a lot more changes going on in, in the dispatch world in the last few years than there historically have been, uh, and that's additional work. Um, we have worked with SEIU on some schedule changes, uh, increasing ability to get time off and other measures to, uh, to try to improve working conditions. Um, I'm going to stop my presentation there. We, I have additional slides um, that speak to the next measure, um, but will be there only if um, there are questions related to that. So I'll stop now and see if there are any questions. <coughs> if you have any questions, I have a few questions, um, but I'll start with Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. And just Quick question from a from a data collection standpoint, the volume of calls to 911 does that include like if they're trying to reach the street crisis response team, or also does it include calls that may maybe should not be calling 911? Uh, sure. The slide that I showed is showing emergency call volume, and so that's mainly our 911 uh, line. We also have our non-emergency line. Uh, which has seen a similar trend. I did not show that in the slide here. And the calls to um, street crisis response team would come in on one of those two lines. I guess my question is, do we know how many calls are coming into 911 that should be calling somewhere else? Um, we have done some studies on that. It's, a, it's hard to track for data reasons, but we have done some studies on that. We do think that... Um, a large portion of 911 calls are accidental dials or inappropriate for 911. Um, no, estimates are as much as 40% of 911 calls uh, actually uh, should not, and that's consistent um, nationwide. Um, there's been some studies uh, nationwide about that, and we did a sample of calls um, to try to estimate our number, and they were pretty similar. Thank you. I'll ask a few questions, and if folks, uh have questions. So great to know that the recruiter was hired in October of 2022 and we've seen a significant uh, increase in applicants. Um, what is your historic vacancy rate? I understand that you said that you need to hire 24 on an annual basis to maintain proper staffing. You were funded at 36, but only 17 um, were actually filled position in terms of positions um, talk a little bit more it's a 10-month period for permanent hire so you've you've gotten more applicants that's good uh, but it seems like there are some other things that could be done to be filling these positions and also thinking about this from a historic vacancy rate sure our vacancy rate is calculated a little differently than most departments, us along with fire department, police department, sheriff department, hiring classes. Uh, and so our ASO is, I'm not sure of the exact number, it's 190-something. Um, I, don't, I don't know what ASO it's, means, sorry. Uh, the authorized position count in the budget, the ASO budget um, position count. Um, but we're funded at a lower level. Um, the the Authorized position count is such because we hire in these classes that requires to have a higher number. The effective rate that we would try to get to would be about 160, 165 filled positions. 
um, we are budgeted at what um, between us and the budget office and, and uh, your analysts predict we will actually fill. So we usually have an attrition cut against the, the authorized positions um, and uh, that number is lower based on what we can effectively hire and what we expect for attrition. Um, so if you had 100, 165 that you can fill, what is the current number? We currently have um, this may not be exact, but about 137 or 136 filled uh, entry-level dispatcher positions. So you're, um, down, you're down about 24 to 30? Yes, and uh, about 15 of those positions are trainees. Uh, and so we uh, would Of the 24 to 30? Of the 137. Oh. Uh, and so we would expect 24 to... 24 are trainees. About 15 are trainees. Sorry, sorry. 15 are trainees. And so we would expect to see some attrition of that number. The fully trained dispatcher number is about 122. And so how long has it been at this level, around 137 to 136? I guess what I'm trying to get at, I, I understand we've gone mm -hmm. through COVID. I guess there, I understand that there's been hurdles in hiring. I understand that it sounds like there was a freeze in however you all put people through the training process. Uh, but we've also seen a major impact on how we're able to respond and how you're able to fill those positions. So I'm just trying to think when we actually the first day that COVID was announced, we had a hearing in this room regarding the hiring of nurses for the emergency room. We work with DPH. We were able to expedite that entire process and shrink a 10 month period down to a 90 day period. So is there any conversation about moving expeditiously and we did that in partnership with the union and DHR and the department. So I'm just curious to hear what the plans are to try and expedite the hiring process. I, I see you have a recruiter, that's great. So the volume of applicants has gone up dramatically. Mm -hmm. But can you talk a little bit more about that? Because this is obviously, I know it's something you're concerned about and I've had conversations with Director Carroll about that before when we've had some pressure points that we felt in the community just would like to hear you talk a little bit more about that on the record. Uh, sure, as I understand you're asking about speeding up the hiring process. Um, most of the 10 month period from a date of application to when we can effectively hire, it's not a, it can be nine month, it can be 11 months or, or so, but on average about 10 months, is related to uh, state requirements related to Peace Officer and Standards Training Council. Um, our dispatchers need to be certified by post uh, similar to um, law enforcement officers. Um, and Let me ask one clarifying question. So certainly. are they in the job earlier than that? Because you re referenced that there's 15 of them that are trainees. So at 10 months and then they become trainees or are they trainees during this 10 month period? 10 months from date of application to date of hire on average. Oh. And then 10 months from date of hire to when they finish training on average. So two 10-month periods. And then you talk about two watch-out points for retention. I mean, that's also an important point because you said you lost nine people, which was unusual due to not wanting to be vaccinated. But um, what are some of the wa other watch-out points then? We do lose about half of our new hires before they complete probation. 
and that is split fairly evenly between um, applicants who realize this job may not be the right fit for them uh, and people who we've, we fail out uh, for not being able to uh, answer calls to the standards that we have or do dispatch to the standards that we have. So for every 10 hires, we on average end up with five people who pass probation. I'm just reading off of your slides. You said you are working with the union on trying to address the two washout points. Can you speak a little bit more about that then? We're working with the union to address retention and recruitment um, measures overall, and DHR is leading those conversations. And uh, I, I can't speak to that uh, much at this point. That's a um, negotiation. Um, That's fine. We, so we, let's go back to the other point, because I don't think I really got a question, uh, an answer really, other than that there's state requirements on how long it takes to hire. But so what is the plan or is there a plan to get from 136, 137 up to the filled number, 160, 165? Is there an aggressive hiring plan? There is an aggressive hiring plan. Uh, the first part is to fill our classes. Uh, we can hire about 15 people at a time. That's about the capacity we have to train people. They have to sit one-on-one -on -one with a trainer for uh, about eight months. Um, and so um, this current fiscal year, we wanted to have three classes of 15. We were only able to uh, hire a total of 17 people. Next year, we do believe we will be able to hire um, close to the 45. Um, and so that's the first plank of the plan. And, and uh, I think the recruiter is a, has played a major part of that. Um, we have also addressed some of the um, things that wash out applicants before hire. Um, so we've looked at and highlight two of them in particular, our um, previous drug use policy, um, making some changes to that, um, and changes to the, the words per minute requirement um, to, uh, to try to have more um, qualified applicants uh, come through to be able to be hired. Um, once applicants are hired, uh, we are always looking at our training program and trying to improve um, retention of that, try to give people um, opportunities to become, uh, to show that they can do the work, as well as conclude that this job is a good fit for them. And so some of those things are, are, um, are uh, working conditions. Um, that's a major um, source of losing new applicants. Uh, and so things about um, working with people to get time off, working with people on schedules, um, and other working conditions like that are, is important for retaining both existing employees and in particular new applicants where we see the l largest uh, number of people leave. So do you have a timeline in terms of what your target is to fill these positions? Because based on my calculation, if you're down 30 positions and it takes 10 months and then you have drop off, so you have to have at least 24 people hired in that period. You're looking at a couple years before you get up to the right level, which impacts our response times in terms of emergency in what I would say is one of the most important times of need in the city that we've had in some time. You are correct, Supervisor. It will take several years, uh, even with all the efforts that we can make. Um, I would say our estimate is that it will be at towards the end of 2025 calendar year before we reach what we consider to be full staffing. 
It's not necessary to reach full staffing to hit our service standard. Full staffing means a sustainable level of overtime, ability to withstand shocks. Um, we do predict that we'll be able to uh, reach our service standard sometime before that, but before we are full staffing, we do estimate it will be. When do you predict you'll hit your service standard? Um, it's hard to nail down a number and uh, I don't, I don't there are too many variables to uh, really stake um, stake on this, but it, it could be then towards the end of 2024, or possibly even um, you know give or take some months uh, before we can sustainably hit that number. We might hit it from, uh, for a month here or there beforehand, uh, due to fluctuations in call volume, leave usage, things like that. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Any any other questions from colleagues? I do actually. Um, I kind of want to understand the hired recruiter in October, um, and because it was budgeted uh, in last budget conversation, so you start to have your new budget in July, but then you were able to hire a recruiter. Was it you as the DEM hire, or the Department of Emergency Management hire the recruiter, or was it the HR actually hire, our Department of Human Resources that actually hired a recruiter on your behalf? Uh, hired by our department. By, directly by your department. Correct. And um, so did you actually go through an RFP process? It's, it's, a, uh, it's a city position. It's a civil service position. So Understood. We, we so you that. use the city's um, recruiter. Uh, so I'm trying to understand. The recruiter that you said that you hired, Correct. did that hiring process, like, did you hire a recruiter through an RFP process? Like, how did you hire the recruiter? We hired the recruiter by posting the position and doing the, the normal um, um, word of mouth through social media and, and things of that nature. Uh, and we had a, a good number of applicants. Uh, we did a, a test and we interviewed some in, when we hired the most qualified candidate. Great, and how much was the recruiter in terms of budget? How much did you spend on the hiring recruiter? I don't know that off the top of my head. We can find that information for you. No problem. Just a thought. This is not directly relevant to DEM in terms of, I just wanted to actually try to compare all the recruitment process from all the city departments. Seems like some have much more difficult time than the others. Nonetheless, very challenging jobs, and I can understand, and especially the challenges that you face with retention. Uh, it's a very stressful job uh, for these folks, so I appreciate the effort. Thank you. Okay, great. So I think then we'll go to the next uh, presenter, which is uh, Deputy Chief Administra of, of Administration Tom O'Connor from the Fire Department, and Sandra Tong, Deputy Chief of EMS and Community Paramedicine. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Tom O'Connor, Deputy Chief of Administration. And as you stated with me today is Deputy Chief Sandy Tong from our Emergency Medical Services Division as well as Assistant Deputy Chief Niels Tangularini, also from the Emergency Medical Services Division. Today we're here to speak about 911 ambulance response times. We'll begin with our response time metric, if we could bring up the PowerPoint presentation, thank you. So we're guided by the San Francisco Emergency Medical Services Agency Policy 4000, which states that providers shall ensure that a patient transportation capable vehicle, an ambulance, 
has to be staffed by at least two personnel, including one paramedic, and permitted as an ALS ambulance, that's advanced life-saving services, by the EMS agency, and be on the scene of all defined threatening emergencies within 10 minutes and zero seconds. Now, the 911 ambulance providers consist of the San Francisco Fire Department, American Medical Response, AMR, and King American. So our current situation is as follows. We've had an initial increase of 10 FTEs allocated to us in the fiscal year 21-22 budget. We had an additional 50 full-time employees <coughs> added due to a mid-year supplemental. So all 60 of these employees are onboarded and in service as of October of 2022. This gave us an additional increase of six to nine ambulances per day. Now, according to our response time metric, in October of 2022, with these increased ambulances, we reached the 90 percentile once again. Then we saw our numbers slip down to 88% in November of 22, 87% in December of 22, and in January of 23, we ratcheted up again a little bit to 88%. Most importantly, though, during this time period, we found our, medic, our phantom medic calls, or medic to follow calls, decreased by over 50%. Now, what this call is, is that we'll have a 911 call for an emergency medical situation, and we won't have an ambulance to respond right away. We'll just have a fire engine to respond. And we'll have to wait for that ambulance to get back in service to respond to the patient side. So initially, we had numbers roughly around 6% of our calls were medic to follow or phantom calls, and that's down to 3% now. So we went from roughly 595 calls a month waiting for an ambulance to 325 calls a month. And we only have four months of data to look at, but what's working so far is that the increased staffing, as I stated, has resulted in more ambulances in the system and a reduction in our medic to follow or phantom medic calls. We've seen our quote unquote market share of 911 calls increase from 73% in 2013 to roughly 81% in 2022. Now, while this results in increased revenue for the city, it also presents increased challenges. So we've had an increase in call volume, including an assumption of previously designated police-related calls. So our community paramedicine division has seen an increase in roughly 16,736 calls between our street crisis team, our street overdose response team, and our street wellness teams. We've also seen calls for overdoses increase by up to 25%, We've seen calls for behavioral health issues increase by roughly 38%, and we've seen an increase in unknown medical calls by 56%. This would be sort of your cell phone Samaritans giving a call for someone on the sidewalk but not really knowing what's wrong with the person who's on the sidewalk. We've also seen during this time period an increased time on task, meaning our ambulances are on each call for a longer period of time. The primary driver of this is something called APOT, or Ambulance Patient Offload Time. So between 2019 and 2022, we saw a 19-minute increase in the amount of time that our ambulances are waiting at the hospital to offload a patient. So essentially what's happening is that the fire department is upstaffing the shortage in hospital personnel. So in an ER, you have a one-to-four ratio, one nurse to four patients. So if you're short two nurses in the ER, that's eight less patients that can be treated immediately, which leads to an ambulance that's out of service for roughly an additional 19 minutes. We've also seen during this period of time a decrease in the number of private ambulances. So all the staffing shortfalls that we see in the police department and in the fire department and in DEM, we also are seeing in the private ambulance, they're having a hard time getting new personnel. And lastly, we've seen traffic congestion as well increase our response times and our time on task. Now, what we're doing going forward is we're engaging in strategic planning. So we're looking at the predictive data that's available to us. We can go back in time and see that EMS calls, medical calls, 
increase at roughly 3% each year going forward. So right now we're operating at our 2021 staffing levels, but our call volume is probably up 6 to 9% since 21. Now we're here in 23. And we're also looking at neighborhood call demand. So when all of our resources are drawn downtown to the increase in behavioral health calls and the increase in overdose calls, it takes us longer to respond to the neighborhoods if we're downtown treating other patients. So if we have a preponderance of calls in the Tenderloin or in the Mission or in the downtown corridor and we get a call out in the Bayview Hunters Point or out in the Richmond or Sunset or out in the Ingleside, it's just a simply a matter of more geographical terrain to cover to respond to. So we're looking at new modeling where we place ambulances out in the neighborhoods just dedicated towards those neighborhoods. We're also looking at the population data related to EMS use. So we're seeing an increase in calls for high risk and high need populations. We're trying to look at the emerging health crises, COVID, opioid problems, behavioral health issues, and see how we can better triage those calls. And lastly, we're look, trying to find ways to address time on task, looking at issues with, as I said, the APOT, ambulance patient offloading times. We're looking at the effects of traffic congestion, and we're looking at changes in medical care where we're forced to use new medical equipment on scene according to pre-hospital policies by the EMSA. So in a nutshell, the increase in personnel has helped us dramatically address the call volume. However, in the same period of time, we're finding an increased call volume, which is making it more difficult for us to do our job, as well as staffing shortages in hospitals and other places, which lead to an increased time on task. So I'll be ready to answer any questions you may have about our performance metrics going forward, and I'll also be deferring to Chief Tong and Chief Tanglerini, our resident experts. Sorry. Thank you so much, Deputy Chief. Um, O'Connor. So a couple questions. First, um, I know that we work collectively with your department over the course of the last year and a half uh, to increase the number of uh, staff for ambulance responses, but then also the, the volume and the amount of work that's been shifted over to your department has impacted uh, the response times. Do, what do you think is the solution? There's a variety of solutions, but essentially it's, it's a math problem. You have X number of calls and Y number of employees to answer those calls. So either we add more employees to face increased volume of calls, or we find a way to take those calls off the books and defer other resources to address those calls. So it's, I don't mean to skirt the question, Supervisor, but it's, it's not a simple one-off. I mean, increased personnel will help, but we also need to upstaff our emergency rooms. We also need to get more people in community paramedicine to address calls and triage the behavioral health issues. We need to get drugs off the street. If we could lower the drug overdoses. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the emergency room part uh, because I guess there's a difference in what they call wall times turnaround. I know you all know, but I just want to make sure I said it for the record. I'm not trying to sound smart. I, I know that that's jargon that you all use, but it's the turnaround for ambul ambulances at the hospital, right? But there's a difference in terms of wall times at private and public hospitals. And some of that has to do with staffing in those hospitals as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm gonna to defer to our experts in that one. So if I could bring up Chief Tangarini to answer that. Good afternoon, supervisors. Thank you for uh, uh, talking to us about this. Yes, so, uh, you know, our challenges is each, each hospital is a little different. Um, they are all required. They have nurse to patient ratios, uh, one nurse to every four patients in an ER. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the challenges we see are 
you know, our, our public hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, has one of the larger ERs, and it is also the ER that is more likely to absorb some of our high-risk and high-need populations. Um, you know, crews will tend to bring patients there in hopes that they'll get connections to services. Uh, so that can impact the amount of time waiting. Uh, some of the hospitals are specialty care centers, and if they're focused on, uh, you know, a heart attack patient or a stroke patient, <coughs> that can delay the amount of time they have to spend with, with non-critical patients. Our challenge, sorry. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, do you, is the, are the wall times tracked? Yes, they're tracked at each facility. And do we have that data? Uh, yes, that is, uh, our, our, our partners at the LEMSA actually uh, track that monthly. That would be good to speak about for a moment because I think that also tells a I mean, sure. I, I know I'm, I referenced the emergency room nurses. It was one of the things that we were trying to do. But again, one of the things that we hear from them over and over again is the staffing levels and the mandatory overtime and the burnout and the retention. A lot like seems like this is a ripple effect through our entire emergency response system. Something that's been put to the stress test over the last couple of years and it feels like it's at a breaking point. So when, when ambulances are lining up and not able to and should never leave patients until they're fully received, then that then impacts the response time on another end and then it keeps having a ripple effect. But so want to hear, hear what you have to say about the wall times um, and the differences maybe between public versus private hospitals. Uh, certainly, Supervisor. Again, Robert Smuts with uh, Department of Emergency Management. Um, the slide I have now, if we can pull that up, um, the two charts here, the top chart just shows system-wide 90th percentile APOT one time. APOT, again, is uh, the offload time. Uh, and then the... These, this is really, really small. Can you... I'm sorry. Sure. Um, oh. The... Top chart, just the takeaway is that the numbers going has trended up and then in the last four months has increased significantly. In uh, and, and, and what is this measuring? I'm sorry. This is measuring system-wide APOT. So this is for all receiving hospitals, the 90th percentile um, offload times, which increased up the last numbers, 51 minutes. Um, and so this is measuring for all receiving hospitals. The chart below it, um, breaks down by month and then by hospital for the, the receiving hospitals in San Francisco. And so, again, be, uh, apologies for the small font. Uh, uh, we, 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 have a cop, we have a copy here. I'm just concerned for people at home if they're able to read that. So I just wanted you to kind of slowly go through what that actually means. So is the trending line up, going up good or bad? I mean, just for people watching at home. Trend line in APOT going up is definitely bad. Uh, it is the, um, the things that um, you've heard from uh, Chief O'Connor, um, ambulances having to stay at hospitals for a longer period of time, um, largely due, it could be for a variety of reasons, but largely due to staffing uh, challenges at the hospital or other issues, uh, throughput issue. Um, and where is it? where does it show public versus, oh, it says by hospital, here we go, okay. So the, the, I mean, there, there's the general, which is fun, um, public hospital for us, and there's uh, VA, and there's also UCSF, which are different forms of public. Um, but uh, oh, this is the amount of time. So one of the longest ones I see here is CPMC Van Ness. Average is 52 minutes. Correct. That's a long time to be uh, sitting there waiting. 
CPMC, all three campuses have had challenges with APOT. Uh, CPMC of NS has, uh, as you noticed, uh, noted, uh, the most significant. The VA uh, is the best. The VA and Chinese, FYI. VA is sort of a different uh, receiving hospital uh, than the others. It doesn't have the same type of uh, um, uh, uh, transports. Um, but yes, you'll see a wide variety. I mean, among larger hospitals, I'd, I'd note that uh, St. Francis usually has pretty good numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, the general is usually pretty good. Um, it, like all hospitals, had some challenges the last few months. Um, yeah, I was going to say, it looks it's gone up December to January. It's over the 50-minute. Actually, from November, it's been trending up into that red area. I would, uh, zooming out uh, for just a second on this issue, we usually talk about APOT together with another measure, which is called diversion, um, which together, uh, I think, give a good snapshot of the overall health of receiving hospitals. Um, this chart shows uh, the diversion rate for the general hospital, and the general is, is typically the hospital with the most challenge with diversion because they're the only uh, level one trauma center, and so they have trauma override, which is another form of diversion. What diversion is, is um, when a hospital uh, is backed up and says we're not receiving uh, normal transports. They can still receive certain categories, uh, the highest acuity of transports, and for certain specialty centers, some other um, types of transports. Um, but they're, they're basically closing the doors to a normal, what we call code two transport. Um, and can, do, we stop, can we stop for sure. a second here? Um, because I, I, I think we have Dr. Ehrlich on the line if she's there. I want to ask her because it seems to me I keep hearing a recurring theme that there's some staffing issues at the hospitals, whether it's SFG, whether it's Zuckerberg or any of the other camp, um, campuses around the city. But I want to give Dr. Ehrlich an opportunity to jump in because we are not hitting our goals and it sounds like staffing is an issue within the emergency rooms and, and hospital overall. Are you there, Dr. Ehrlich? I see you online. Can you hear me? Yes, I am. Good afternoon, uh, Supervisor. Um, thank you for uh, asking me to comment on this topic. Uh, so first of all, <clears throat> I want to say that diversion, ambulance diversion has been a challenge for us um, for many years. And in partnership with EMSA, um, we've been working very um, carefully on bringing it down. And you can see that um, our average time on diversion has come down pretty significantly during a time when we have unprecedented numbers of patients in the hospital. And I, I'm happy to say that for February, um, we just finished the month, uh, we're at 45%, which is really good for us. So um, we're, we're taking this issue seriously and we're doing well at it. Um, you asked about staffing. Um, we, like other hospitals in the United States, have had profound issues with staffing. Um, our staffing issues are getting better. Um, we are uh, much better staffed in the emergency department and throughout the hospital right now, which is uh, definitely helping us um, bring that down the diversion rates. It was much harder to uh, fill jobs um, either with permanent employees or registry staff um, in the summer and um, the early winter, um, but, but we're doing better right now, um, which is helping us. Great, okay, I'm sorry, I'll continue. You heard it from uh, Dr. Ehrlich, but I, I uh, would also like to note that- uh, But I, I, do, I just wanna underscore, and I appreciate Dr. Ehrlich saying that, but we're still diverting at 45% of the time. 
right? So the goal is, the standard goal is 30%. So we're still 15%. We're trending in the right direction. I appreciate that. But just want to underscore, we're, we're diverting at a 45% rate. And so some of that definitely has to do with staffing issues. Heard that now from the fire department. We're hearing that now from the our largest public hospital. Um, and so just wanted to underscore that. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, Supervisor, if I may just clarify a couple of things for you. First of all, um, when we go on ambulance diversion, we never, ever go on diversion for trauma, heart attack, or stroke. Um, and the truth is that when, um, when we do go uh, on ambulance diversion, it has no impact on, on, on the fire department or any other ambulance provider bringing the sickest patients to us. No, it's I, really the, the lower acuity patients who, who um, get diverted, no, just to I, clarify that. I, I understand that, the sickest, because I heard him say that they still get through, but it does impact the APOT. Am I saying that right? APOT time? So if you're diverting more, you're, in, you're receiving, and then more people are waiting, and then the wait time for these uh, goes up. So the APOT is impacted by diversions. We do see an impact uh, when one particularly large hospital goes on diversion, um, those ambulances have to go somewhere, and so the rest of the system is impacted, which is why we do talk about diversion together with APOT. Um, I would note um, we adopted uh, about a year, year, a little over a year ago, um, this, this two-tier of standards for both APOT and for diversion. Um, we'd seen a significant uh, impact on both of those me measures, and we adopted some measures to, um, to give some teeth behind these measures, uh, um, as well as laying out a constructive way of working with the hospitals to address them. Um, we implemented that first uh, with regards to diversion and working with Dr. Ehrlich and her team in the general, uh, and I would just like to commend the general for the work that they've done um, to address uh, diversion and the impact that it has on the overall system. I think the numbers and the trend line here is just really remarkable and, and a significant achievement, um, particularly given uh, what the hospitals have seen uh, in flu season and this uh, uh, in the last few months. Um, I think that that focus, uh, we are now uh, reaching out to some of the hospitals that have the most significant APOT challenges. Um, and going down the same path with them. Uh, and I think that that will be um, the work that the EMSA is focused on in the next several months and something that those hospitals clearly will have to focus on. Thank you. Okay, Can I'm, I'm going I'm to ask Supervisor Ronan to yes. jump in because I, I probably have more questions. But sorry, thank you for your patience. Thank you. I, I just had a couple of questions. Um, just curious uh, about whether or not there's been any communication to CPMC about how much longer their private, technically nonprofit, but uh, really high paid executives um, and not a lot of, you know, community uh, cooperation from that hospital and the toll it's taking on our system. Um, have there been attempts to communicate with the hospital and ask them to shape up? We've had a number of forms for communication. Uh, we've met with the hospital council um, and we've had a, a working group to talk about um, diversion and APOT and both how to meet the most, um, the more immediate higher standards as well as how to aim for meeting the overall standards uh, long term. And then more recently, 
um, Andrew Holcomb, the director of the EMSA, uh, has been reaching out uh, directly um, to leadership at CPMC and UCSF, I would I'd say particularly those hospitals, uh, about their APOT times and the measures that we need to pursue to, to bring them down. I mean, I'm, I'm just, it, it, there's a huge difference between uh, the rest of the hospitals and, and CPMC. I, I mean, it, UCSF Parnassus isn't far behind, but I think um, we should be very proud of general <laughs> in comparison. Um, it, this, is, this is really interesting data, uh, but I, I think we need to ask more from them. I mean, you know, they, they, they do not do enough uh, to contribute to the needs of our city, and they should because uh, they certainly have a big imprint and, uh, you know, have had a major uh, role in driving up hospital costs, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would just encourage that. Um, my second question um, is more to Chief O'Connor. Um, you know, it, 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 we have diverted uh, a significant amount of work from the police to the f fire department over the past couple of years. And granted, those are specialized units, the skirt team, the, the EMS team, the overdose team, the wellness team, you know, all the teams. Um, and so I know that doesn't directly deal with this ambulance you know, question, but the overall impact on the department has been great. You've had a lot more work than you've had in the past. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, given that, and this is also to our budget director, given that we're being asked to do a $25 million budget supplemental to the police, um, isn't it correct that there was, that, that the fire department slash DPH now responds to 15,000 calls a year that the police used to respond to, and now the fire department and DPH via all the teams is now responding to? That's correct, 16,736. Oh, not 15,000, 16,000. And so I guess, you know, some of the questions that I have or will have as that budget supplemental comes to us and just the overall impact of on the, emer the, the rest of the emergency system that it isn't necessarily meeting these goals. It feels like the pol police, which has probably a bigger budget than all of the departments, a much bigger budget, um, we're reducing the amount of work that they have to do significantly. We're increasing that work uh, for the fire department and DPH, it probably is around the same for DEM, but DEM contributes heavily by diverting the calls in the right direction. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just curious why that hasn't shown up in, you know, the budget, the budgetary needs of the police department. This is especially the fact because if you hear from many of our constituents, I know this is the case in the mission, but I think this is true citywide, what you hear is you don't see the police in the neighborhoods. You don't see them responding to crimes or you see them watching crime happen right in front of them with no response. Whereas you see the fire department and the ambulances in our streets um, responding to the mental health needs of our, or challenges of, of people in the streets. And so I just, 
for me, it's it's not directly on point, but it's related to the these issues of in our entire public safety apparatus. You know, you've got departments that are working within their budget, yet doing much more work <laughs> than ever before. That people see doing work in the streets in a meaningful way, and then you have a department. Um, that we hear a lot of complaints about being understaffed. These departments are understaffed. We don't hear the same complaints. And yet, they're the only department asking for more money when they have one of the biggest budgets of the entire city. So I, I, I'd love to hear, I just want to make that point more than anything else, but I'd love to hear from the budget director to begin to answer these questions. And while that supplemental isn't before us today, it, it, it's related to our overall emergency response system. Thank you for the question, Supervisor Ronan, and I, I, th I think it's a great question to be asking. We're sort of shifting all these resources around. Shouldn't we be save seeing saving somewhere if we're moving them to another place? I think the police department will be able to best speak to exactly what is driving their overtime needs and what types of activities they are or are not doing and how that has changed over time. I think the, easy, like the most um, broad response I can offer is that the the severity of the police's staffing shortage is even greater than a lot of these other departments. So they're just so far behind that even if they are shifting some of their activities um, to other departments, they just have a, a really big um, gap to catch up to. So I think that's the short answer. There's a lot more nuance to that and to what the police department, again, is and is mm -hmm. not doing. Um, and I can ask them to prepare to answer some of those questions when this becomes comes yeah, that before would be you. Yeah, be helpful because I, you know these are these are departments that we're seeing the work, we're, we're we're seeing the benefits in the streets, and there's the fire department and the emergency department are all also understaffed, and yet we're not having budget supplementals from those departments, and we can actually feel the the significance of the work. And so I, I just think that that's going to be an important conversation for us to have in this in this. If I may just committee. add one more point to that, um, is that we did introduce a supplemental last year to um, drastically increase staffing within the fire department. And while the police department has been trying to add academies, we really haven't added that much net new staffing. So that's another key difference. Sure, but we completely funded the ask, the mayor and the uh, SFPD's ask for um, the four police academies. We funded what they asked for. So again, I just, I just, I just think it's an important point as this, these questions are coming up um, around this budget supplemental and we're getting inundated with emails that you know we have other public safety departments um, that have taken on a lot of the work uh, happily and, and great, you know, we're all very grateful for it. Um, and they have staffing needs uh, as well, and it, it just feels, it feels very different, I have to say. I, I concur. I mean, I think that, thank you so much um, for uh, Deputy Chief O'Connor for pointing out, you know, uh, the 
patient, um, ambulance patient drop-off time, that it's really the lack of nurses. And when I tour, I think colleagues you too have, to when you tour San Francisco General Hospital, we all recognize the shortage of our nurses. And that's in fact, when I walk through the emergency rooms and I see that on the board is one, number one concern is the, the shortage of nurses staffing. Um, and the short of, I, I think we know that we're preaching to choir here, um, so to speak. So I'm grateful to the work that everyone has done here and, uh, and, and for stepping up. And I think um, the question ultimately is, is back to the mayor's office to trying to balance this out and figuring out um, when everybody should you know, come back for a supplemental um, because these are all very critical services. It's a full cycle, full circle of like um, first responders, so to speak. It's every role is critical. Our police officers, our firefighters, our nurses are all very critical to respond to emergency and, and truly it's life and death. So um, I agree that I concur that it's critical and we gotta really figure this out. <coughs> Thank you, um, <coughs> thank you, uh, Madam Chair, thank you, Supervisor Rona. I think those are good points. I also think that this seems to have been a problem that's been growing for some time, and this is not just, you know, we, we did the 60-plus paramedics you know, last year. We did that supplemental. We did some in the budget. We did some in the supplemental. We're having to address uh, shifting of, of responsibilities. Now DEM has a shortage in terms of, their call folks. But then also I think what's, what's happening is so many people divert to the ER, whether it's people with medical psychosis, drug addiction, whatever it may be, and these emergency rooms are being overburdened. And so then that, that then, because there's not, I mean, we read that there's a shortage of mental health workers, right? And Supervisor Rona has been talking about that for some time. If we don't have places to put people in med psych beds or put them into care or put them into inpatient and outpatient or treatment facilities, everything gets sent to the emergency room. And so I guess what I would say is we've been talking for the last two years, even prior last three years, about filling a lot of these vacant positions citywide. I'd just like to hear from the budget director what the, the plan was from the, from the mayor's office and, and, and team, because this seems to be now a system-wide problem that's impacting multiple facets of delivery in our city. Thank you, Supervisor. And your question is, what is the mayor's office in the city doing about well, I mean, I mean now, vacancies now citywide? Now we have an $800 million shortfall. We didn't have that couple years ago. This is not something that just happened today, and yet we're having a shortage across the board in terms of all of these different areas of service delivery, and it's impacting now ambulance response time, police response times, ER's ability to take patients, our APOT, learned a new acronym today, all of, you know, wall time. All of these things, is, it's, it's, there's a backup in the entire system. And so, I mean, this has to be something that's just talked about in a very honest way. So, Yeah, I mean, what I can say is we're in a, a very difficult and um, uh, sort of ironic position that we both have this huge budget deficit and at the same time have all these vacancies. You would think 
we have all these vacancies, so um, isn't that helping us save money because we're not filling positions? Um, but there's a few things happening there. One is that there's over, a lot of overtime being spent in many of these departments to make up for those vacancies. Um, so that's on the sort of cost side. And on the other side, the reason the mayor did not say in her budget instructions, let's freeze all hiring, is because we know we're not delivering on key city services to the standards that we would all like to see, and that there are really important areas where we need to increase hiring. In terms of what the mayor and other city departments are doing, there's a few things. Um, the Department of Human Resources, along with other citywide leaders, have a working group that are looking at a lot of hiring changes and reforms, some of which have, become, have come before this board and the Civil Service Commission to make changes, things like continuous testing, online testing, um, provisional lists, changes to our hiring process to speed up the hiring timelines. Um, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. I just want to say that, again, and, and I'm glad that that's, it's being addressed now, but this is a problem that's been building for years. One of the things we saw, and I know Public Works is going to go next, Public Works has a historic vacancy depending upon how you calculate their contracting work. If you just talk about their straight budgeted work, it's over 22%. And yet we get so much feedback and pushback. It's one of the reasons why not only are we pushing a supplemental police, but we're also pushing a supplemental cleaning budget because that's one of the things that at least I know I hear and I know a lot of the other supervisors hear all the time, cleanliness and safety. But this is an overall thing that has been building for years and I just wanted to underscore that because this is not something that just showed up during a budget crisis. This is something that's been building for the last four or five years. So the, the last thing I, I wanted to ask, and I heard you say this earlier, uh, Deputy Chief, is that so the amount of calls, the amount of volume, the amount of work has gone up. And I know we did 50 or 60, but it, does, it sounds like maybe some additional staffing would be helpful for the fire department. Absolutely, Supervisor. See all the fire department uniform people nodding their head. In, in, in areas, any area in particular? Uh, we need it across the board. We're short firefighters, we're short EMTs, we're short paramedics. Just a general shortage of everyone. Okay. Well, we're happy to work with your department to follow up. Colleagues, any other additional questions? I do. I, I just wanted to flag a quick one um, because it's the traffic congestion. Um, just want to quickly. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, uh, it's just only because I want to say traffic congestion has always been, in my opinion, uh, been a longstanding issue in San Francisco, especially before the pandemic. I mean, I think we now have, we, you know, the last few years, we slowly ramped back up. Um, so could you help me understand that how does traffic congestion pattern any different than before pandemic and now and, and how to address it? And my assumption yeah, I, I don't want to do assumption, actually. Please um, help me sure. understand. Sure, just you know, by its very nature, if we're engaging in, in Vision Zero in a traffic calming policy, we're slowing down traffic. So by proxy, you're going to slow down emergency service vehicles. Now, some traffic calming measures, for example, like Van Ness Avenue or 3rd Street, where you have a dedicated bus lane, those are fantastic for emergency services. We have a big red lane that's all ours. We can go up and down the street. Um, in a safe manner and not interfere with traffic. But other avenues where you have, say, a protected bike lane and you've narrowed the street from three to two lanes, there's actually nowhere for the traffic to go to get out of our way if you have a parking protected bicycle lane. Like, we can't move the cars to the side to get through. So 
it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword on some streets. We're seeing improvements on most streets. We're seeing great difficulties getting through. Um, our overall response times, I believe, for even fire engines, if you take ambulances out of the mix because there's a whole bunch of other factors that involve there, but if you just look at fire engine and fire truck response, I believe we're up roughly 80 to 90 seconds on our response times there over the last four years. So it's having effect on our response times. So then when you list time on task, and meaning, you know, these are the issues that you want to address. How are you going to uh, address the traffic congestion here? I think addressing the traffic congestion would be a broader citywide solution with multiple agencies where we sit down and have conversations as to <coughs> what works for emergency services and what doesn't and try to find compromise in between there. I look forward to seeing a map, if possible. Just the mapping of understanding overlaying from with SFMTA and, and the fire department to kind of, kind of help us understand um, uh, problematic areas and help us understand city why I, I want to say that I'm in support of bike connectivity and and you've protected bike lane whenever possible and to create bike lanes all across the city I think it's a it's a worthwhile effort um, I, I, I'm hoping though not at the expense of public safety and so hoping that there's some conversation that I help us understand when we uh, as we approach both meaning help you improve your response time as well as making sure that we have bike connectivity citywide, that we, we can do both efficiently. And, and hopefully by having a map to help us, or at least for me, I think that personally I would love to have a visual to understand how it actually looks like. So thank you. Sure, and one last thing, Supervisor, if I may. None of us are against Vision Zero. We would love to have zero pedestrian fatalities, zero injuries, zero, you know. Less work for you. Injury, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no one wants it more than us. We respond to those calls. But by the same time, there's a balance there where we need to get through to get to other emergencies. So just a conversation with all the agencies would be terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, colleagues, any other questions or comments? Okay, I'm going to bring up the last person, uh, Chris McDaniels. Thank you, Deputy Chief. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor. From the Fire Department and DEM for your thoughtful uh, responses. Um, bring up uh, Chris McDaniels, the Superintendent of BSES, a.k.a. Bureau of Street and Environmental Services, for those that don't know what BSES means, um, at Public Works. And so you're going to present on street cleaning and cleanliness. Thank you for joining us today. And your Thank patience. you, uh, Supervisors. Very happy to be here. Uh, first of all, I just, just want to mention that um, back in November of 2021, I did a gap analysis in my bureau, and I found that we were 25% short as far as my staffing levels. So then I was tasked to come up with a plan to try to um, address that shortage. Um, the good news is we recently hired a HR director in the last couple months and she has a very aggressive plan to get me the resources that I need. So I'm very, say, very... When you say we, you mean BSES or... or all of works? operations, all of right. DPW. Right. Um, if I could be selfish for a minute, I, I do need people to get the work done. No, you know, we want to sure. keep the city beautiful, and um, <clears throat> my people are very important to me, and I, I really care about them. And if you share, if, if you let your folks know that you care about them, they do better work. The environment in which we work in is challenging at times. As you know, the mayor declared emergency in the TL, and we had to um, bring additional staffing together to address that very serious crisis. And my folks are, are dealing with that every single day. We came up with a word, Sisyphean, which means uh, unachievable task. No matter what we do, the next day is going to be the same. 
So we have to work with our staff to get them to understand that and to uh, work with them to keep a level head and get the work done. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there first. Uh, we do have some good news on staffing, and I hope the new director can get us what we need um, as soon as possible. Also, I want to uh, thank you for mentioning the, the new initiative or funding for cleaning citywide. We're developing a plan for that, so thank you very much. Um, we also have challenges in the Bayview, and we've been working with you and uh, Supervisor Walden on camera so we can identify these illegal uh, yep. e illegal dumping. We want to get a picture of the license plate so we can do something about it. So thank you very much for doing all that for us. So without further ado, I'm going to get into the slides. This presentation is about street cleaning. The first slide is a uh, graph on annual volume of 301 uh, service requests. As you can see in 2021, we had 147,000 service requests, and we were about 91%, excuse me, 92%. In 2022, we got a, an additional 30,000 service requests. Mm. So our um, percentage went down a little bit. And just so you know, the colors, um, the purple at the bottom is street cleaning. The grayish purple is uh, our steaming work and the pinkish is kind of encampments, and then the light pink is our packer, packer trucks. So these are the service requests coming in in those areas. For 2023, uh, you can see there at, at this point, we have 103,000 total service requests. So we are projected to be about 161,000 service requests coming in. So um, with that sheer volume, we're predicting about 78%. As we talked about, if I get my staffing like we're supposed to, we can definitely improve on that number. The next slide is the tonnage that we are collecting and taking to our partner Recology. In 2021, you can see the, the tannish area on the left is just exclusive sweeper tonnage, and the rest of it is broke down on the right side. For 2021, we had 10,859 service requests for sweepers, and then we have 13,808 for all the rest. There's a legend on the far right that kind of tells you what area um, is represented by the color. In 2022, um, you can see that the sweeper uh, total is kind of consistent with 2021, and the others is pretty consistent as well. If you go to the far right, you see our projection for 2023. It's going to be 15,439, and we're projecting the same amount of sweeper uh, service requests coming in from 301. We have initiated a proactive cleaning program. We want to try to do better and stay ahead of it. So in a lot of the corridors, uh, in the cover of darkness during our night shift, we're working on Mission Street from Cesar Chavez all the way down to Embarcadero. So when the people come to work, they have less concerns that they will take a picture of and see the 311. So that's what we're trying to do proactively. Also, um, Civic Center, uh, Tenderloin, Market Street, we're also <laughs> doing the same type of work to kind of proactively address the situations that we have. Is there a reason why you started Cesar Chavez and not at Geneva? Just because just it impacts my district? in particular <laughs> no no real reason we do catch the balance of it uh on a different schedule but it's not every single night because yeah, i because i ride the corridor at 7 30 a.m and i'm mm -hmm. like oh my gosh and that's when you guys start getting calls from me 
But then I drive back through Supervisor Ronan's district uh -huh. on the way back, so because I can't drive all the way down Mission. So what I can do is I can extend my route to uh, to Cortland and go around that way. Well, that would still be her. It wouldn't hit me. <laughs> they they it, just like her it. better. She'll take it. But if you go to Geneva, that would be good. Geneva to <laughs> Geneva to to Assessor Chavez would be great. Okay, one second. I'm having a little difficulty on this guy. <laughs> Sorry. Take that That'd out. be real. No, he's no, he's going. I know. I was I'm like, am I supposed to make my service demands now? Too? No, no, no. Okay. That, that's why we're doing the twenty-five million dollars supplemental. Okay, guys. For clean streets. For everything. We're okay, going to be cleaning we're the streets. We're back in business. Yeah. We're going to since Sue Rosarona's district gets so much, we're going to skip her. Okay, and then the next slide uh, kind of depicts how many days it takes us to close these service requests. Uh, in 2020. Oh. Because people are hot about it. Shamar's like, it's all right. Go ahead, go ahead. Let me do it. It's been a long day. Just trying to get some humor in here. Yeah, I feel you. So uh, while we get things together, um, I just want to mention that we, we you have. You got to speak into the mic. I'm sorry. There you go. Either one. So when I did the gap analysis, it showed that we were 100 short. So 100, 100 staff, 100 staff members short. So we have 400 total budgeted we're supposed to have. We had about 300 currently working. Now that includes folks that are off on workman's comp, long-term leave, blah, blah, blah. So uh, since then, we've been trying to get our, our workforce back. And as I mentioned, uh, we're trying every way to get additional staffing working. Sorry, I just want to clarify. So when you say uh, 400, but you're 100 short, is, are they FTEs, the full-time positions? Yes, FTEs. Thank that's, you. That's significant. That's a lot. So, so that's a combination of truck drivers. We have a lot of laborers. Uh, we have a lot of 9916s, which we use on our sweeping crews. There's um, a host of different classifications that we use. Okay. I mean, that's significant. I mean, just, I just... Sorry, I just want to underscore that. We had this hearing about six months ago, eight months ago. It was very similar. But this is very, very simplified. You have 400 positions that you need. Only 300 are full. And it's no wonder Supervisor Rona, Supervisor Manelman, Supervisor Chan, Supervisor Safai, Supervisor what we all get calls about the conditions of the streets. So yes, it is. Pushing the rock up the hill, come back the next day. But if you don't have the appropriate staff, you're not going to be able to address the problem. Right. So we need 125% because as city employees with a uh, staff as large as mine, you have people that take vacation. You get people that have, uh, that take sick leave. They go vacation. I they, mean, normal. They, yeah. And so that brings me down to a level where it's hard for me to manage all the work. In addition, we're getting pulled from a lot of different resources. You guys know about the mayor's declaration in the TL. We have other special projects. We had the Linkage Center on Market Street. Oh, gosh. Um, there's events almost every other weekend that we're expected to do post, pre and post cleaning on, the, on those events. We have Chase Center that wants that area clean for every Warriors game. So it's, it's a lot of uh, demand on our crews, and we uh, try to do the best that we can with what we have. Um, before we go to Supervisor Rona, I just want a quick question. Um, are you operating within your budget, even with the with you know, with the current 
So we, we had a budget meeting today. I'm around 81% on overtime and 50-something percent on my regular pay. So in order to get the work done, I have to pay my staff uh, overtime. Yeah. Um, but in the long, big picture, um, we do heavy-duty type work physically uh, demanding on the body. So then I have to deal with uh, workman's comp cases, injuries, and stuff like that. So we're, we're trying to manage it internally to make sure that we can get the work done and to protect our staff as well. It's, it's, a, it's a big challenge for us. Supervisor Ronan. I'm just wondering if you could explain the hiring challenges. What, why aren't you able to fill those positions? So um, as I mentioned, uh, the gap analysis showed 100 people short. Since October, since November 21, we hired a new HR director. She's very aggressive. Um, there's, a, there's a new system, HR system for hiring. Uh, we are more involved now. It's not just HR doing the work. They want us to do some of the work for them. So my ad admin staff is not really happy about that. But if that's what it takes to get staff boots on the ground, we're going to do it. So it's not a workforce crisis. There are the workers who are applying for the job. It's, it's the city bureaucracy to get them on board. Um, that's part of it. As I mentioned, um, folks in my bureau, it's, it's very physical work. So... A lot of folks get hurt, um, they go off on leave. Um, we, some of them come back, some of them don't. Um, but the main emphasis is the time in which it, gets, it takes to get someone hired, yes. Your presentation, but I think sounds like, are you done? Um, I have a couple more slides. Oh, okay, I thought you were done, I'm sorry. Next slide. Keep moving, throw me off. Uh, this slide is about um, the average time to close a service request. Okay. So you can see on the left side in 2021, 1.52 days. And then in 2022, 2023, we're averaging almost two days to close out uh, service requests. On the right side, you can see the green. Um, and that tells you um, uh, the time it takes to close and the percentage. So... 2021, 90% of the time. Um, in 2022 and 2023, we're right at 80, 82. Next slide. Um, this is a slide that represents our Healthy Street Operations Center, or HSOC. Back in 2021 and 2022, those service requests was coming to us to deal with the encampments. Um, now, the requests go directly to the uh, Healthy Streets Operations Center, and that's on the far right in 2023. You can see how much work um, we did in 2021 and 2022, and then now that work is being sent over to uh, the Healthy Streets Operations Center. Next slide. Okay, questions? Uh, Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Supervisor Safai, and thank you for the presentation. Uh, just, I do have a couple of questions. One, and you alluded to this and talked about the legislation that I and um, Supervisor Safai took the lead on to get cameras out and try to do everything we can to stop illegal dumping and be proactive. Mm -hmm. But you know, just, I, I do kind of want you to touch on, like, what are we able to do to prevent continued dumping in some of these high concentration areas that we consistently get calls about on a daily basis? 
So we are um, talking to a couple of companies that may be able to provide uh, drone footage for us to help us identify these particular um, illegal dumping uh, companies. We, we did some research and a lot of the debris is coming from the South Bay, uh, construction related debris. Um, our superintendent that works in the Bayview, Rob Milton, is very passionate about his job and um, we have conversations all the time and it's just, he'll, he'll clear one block and then he'll turn the corner, come back tomorrow and the piles are there again. Uh, this morning he said uh, the piles look like recology. He said the street is starting to look like the recology center where folks are dumping at is just so much. Most of it is construction related and we're doing the best we can to address it. Uh, we brought in heavy equipment. Typically our crews uh, load debris by hand, but as you know, uh, supervisor, that we, we have an end dump, which is a large 10-ton uh, truck that has been dispatched to help Rob do his work out there. We have a front-end loader that loads the truck, and then that huge truck goes to Recology. Um, three or four times a day, we're fully loaded, and it's, it's every day. When I, and I definitely want to thank your team. I mean, I know that folks you know, are out there doing a lot of work, particularly in terms of when we see a mess, uh, getting folks out there, your, your team is very responsible on that. Obviously, we want to try to prevent some of this. Uh, it just seems like we need to have some kind of sting or something that addresses these, particularly these, you know, these construction uh, companies and these dumping companies that are coming into community in the neighborhood to, to really let them know that we mean business. And you brought up a, a few times the uh, tenderloin crisis, which, you know, most certainly um, there are areas in the tenderloin that need attention. But there are also areas across San Francisco, um, particularly, you know, in, in, in my district and the Mission and the 11 and, you know, other areas across the city. Um, so with the TL being prioritized, you know, it's obviously taken away um, support in, in other areas. And you know, I, I just you know, want to make sure that we're mindful of what's happening in other areas while we're concentrating on one particular part of the city. Yes, when we were looking at our performance citywide, we did see that uh, Zone C, which is close to the Tenderloin, um, their responses, their, their response rate was impacted as far as how fast they were responding to their 311 calls. So we had to make an adjustment. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we're going back to basics, uh, basically, and we want to make sure that every district gets, gets the support that they should get. Um, that's part of our proactive plan. Um, we're working on that now. We should be completed with that in a couple months. We want to make sure that each district gets um, the service that they, that they deserve. So part of that additional funding that we're getting, we started to break that down already to um, divvy up the funds so we can do a better job at uh, making sure everybody is taken care of. My, my last question is, I know you said you ha have a HR personnel on point now, uh, which I think is great. Uh, how are we doing on pipeline programs and you know, programs that uh, we used to have that actually fed the department and provided folks who were trained and ready to go to work within the department? Where are we on those programs now? So we have a workforce development section under the operations. Uh, Ms. Darlene Fromm is over that workforce development. Uh, we're bringing in uh, folks on a regular basis, getting them trained up. 
we also work with contractors that we probably uh, you probably discussed here in this forum before. We have a workforce development part of their contract where they have to show us that they're preparing these folks for the next level. Um, that allows us um, to build a succession plan with our within our organization. As you know, we have soup twos, soup ones, and we have general laborers. Well, we're hiring brand new soup twos, and, and that gives the soup ones that opportunity to move up. So then there's a gap in the soup one area, and that's where the general laborers are coming in. So it's a, it's a rotation. We have a succession plan. It's pretty robust. And in all of our contracts, we expect that for those companies to be able to provide that and prove it. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it. I think the thing that jumped out the biggest that you said was 25% vacancy and how that impacts the overall cleanliness of the city and you and your team for being able to do the job. I'm glad to hear the HR director has been aggressive and has been helpful. It's one of the reasons why we initially did Proposition B, even though we changed some aspects of it most recently mm -hmm. with the most recent ballot measure. But the design was to take you from the back of the line or the middle of the line or having to share resources in the city administrator's office and have dedicated back office resources that could help address this historic labor shortage within your department. So it's really important to hear that that's helping, um, but that we also um, can help more with this $25 million plus uh, budget supplemental that we're asking for that will help deal with some of this because having a 25% vacancy within one of the most important divisions within public works directly impacts this cleanliness of the streets. Right. Correct? Absolutely right, and our, our staff is trying hard every single day. Thank you, you know, they, and they're doing a great job. By the way, I, I'm, I'm overly biased having worked at Public Works, but I know you all are out there on the front lines doing great work, right. and it's a difficult, difficult job. And so one thanks. last comment. During yes, um, January, it was raining uh, constantly, and so we, we had to uh, move our resources around. Uh, we do have a commitment with PUC to help them uh, make sure that their catch basins are are flowing oh, right. so we yeah, don't have any floods it. around the city. And we also um, have to dis distribute sandbags to the public that's coming over to our yard. So a lot of the folks uh, during the rainy month of January were redeployed or reassigned to do that, that type of work. That's a good point. I mean, that's also been a, an ongoing issue with the rains and the flooding and how the flooding impacted a lot of people's businesses and homes and how you all stepped up and ordered additional sandbags and kept that flowing and how that's been helpful. Colleagues, any other additional questions? Supervisor Rona, you got them all in? You're good? <laughs> Thank you, Chair. Do you, we have one more? No. Okay, I, good. good. Thank you so much for the opportunity to question. Thank you, uh, Mr. McDaniels, thanks, for coming. Thanks today. for all the help. Uh, supervisors, appreciate yes, it. Thank you everyone for your presentation and thank you Supervisor Safai for bringing this forward. Um, colleagues, I think uh, I wanna let you know uh, just what's ahead of us. We have two supplemental gonna be before this body this exact body is the supplemental for police and uh, the supplemental for um, street cleaning. Uh, I look forward to hearing your feedback and your thoughts on these. Um, I really appreciate, all the more reason why I appreciate Supervisor Safai for bringing this forward today to help us set the framework 
and having some understanding of the operation of our Department of Emergency as well as Public Works. Uh, so then when we do, when we're ready and have those items scheduled before you, uh, hopefully we can fall back into some of this information that we received today. Uh, it's also the reason why though, I'm hoping that Supervisor Safai, with with your support, that we could actually continue this item to the call chair, seeing that there are other city departments uh, actually under this list of performance audits. Uh, perhaps we can utilize very similar uh, just process, bringing them forward for a public hearing, allow this body to question them uh, before we make budget decision together as a body. Great, thank you. So I'm making the motion to uh, continue this to call the chair and I need a second. Uh, actually, before that motion, uh, Madam Chair, we need to take public, public comments. comments. Yes. <laughs> Let's move to public comments. Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this hearing and are joining us in person to line up now. However, those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2490-0312076 and press pound twice. You'll need to press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. That is your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. Uh, Mr. Hsu, if you could uh, unmute or call her, please. Hello, caller. I believe we do hear you. Uh, hello, caller. The committee does hear you. You can begin your comments. I think we should probably move on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Okay. Sue. Yeah, it does look like that's an unattended line. Uh, do we have any callers beyond this uh, this one? Uh, Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. I move the motion to continue to this to call a chair, second by Supervisor Walton. Um, Mr. Clerk, please call the roll. On that motion by Chair Chan, seconded by Member Walton, that this hearing be continued to the call of the Chair. Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Member Ronan. Ronan, aye. Member Walton. Walton, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have five ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Mr. Clerk, do we have any other business before us today? Madam Chair, that concludes our business. Thank you. The meeting is adjourned.